Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Justin is accurate. We do have a new sermon series starting uh, that we're entitling Flow of Change, Navigating the River of Spiritual Growth. And I'm really excited about this. I, I especially like that word growth. I think growth is something that we should all be after. If you know me really well, you would know that I love babies. Uh, I love the infant stage. As a dad, I was a huge fan of that infant six-month stage, getting to snuggle them. I know that most dads, not most, but many dads are like, hey, give the kids to me when they're like two years old and they can talk and they can walk and, and do those sorts of things. But for me, I was, I was all about the baby stage. Uh, to this day, if my wife and I get around somebody who has a newborn, I will get baby fever faster than she gets baby fever. And this may be because she took care of all the, all the feeding, all the crying babies late at night, and I did not. That may be like a, a component there. But nevertheless, I, I love babies. Like if I was not preaching on Sundays, I would be so glad, like literally joyously, I would go serve in the infant side of the nursery and just like snuggle some babies. Like that would be, it would be a treat for me. But as much as I loved the baby stage with, with our own children, I didn't want them to stay babies. I wanted my children to grow, right? I wanted them to develop. I wanted them to grow physically. I wanted them to grow mentally. I wanted them to be able to process more and, and to do more. I really, at my core, want them to grow as individuals. I love being a part of this church for many reasons, but one of the reasons I love being a part of this church is because it's a growing place. I love being a part of a church and a school and a staff that is growing. Even in my own personal life, I want to grow. I, I find it a joy every year to put together a personal growth plan. I enjoy at times helping our staff put together their personal growth plans so that we can look at what do we want to read and what what craft do we want to hone and what conferences do we want to attend so that we can grow and learn and develop. But I want to spiritually grow. I want at the end of each year to be closer to Jesus than I was at the start of the year. I want to know my Bible better and understand it more. I want to grow spiritually. And I think as Christians, at least the Christians that I meet, most of them, if not all of them, are really on board with the idea of growing spiritually. I rarely meet a Christian who's like, nah, I am just completely uninterested in growing spiritually. It sounds like no fun to me, and I don't want to do it. Most people want to, but oftentimes we shoot from the hip, and we're, and we're kind of guessing at, like, how do I do this? Like, I think I'm supposed to go to church some I think I'm supposed to like read my Bible and pray. Shouldn't those be components? Maybe I get baptized. But there's no real system or there's no real thought as to what the Bible would outline on how we could navigate a river of, of spiritual growth. And my goal over the next uh, year or so is to download onto you as the church body a very clear picture of what the Bible says about how we would grow as Christians. And when I say a year, if you're like, this sermon series is going to take a year? 
Well, yes and no. We are going to break it up. We will have Scott Polly with us two weeks from now who will do his own thing. And I'll echo what Justin said. Uh, be here on Sunday morning, of course, but come back on Sunday night. You will find that Scott is not only articulate, but he's just delightful to listen to. And you will really be benefited in your marriage and in your parenting uh, if, if you'll come be a part of that. We'll have Easter sermons. We'll have Christmas sermons. I'll even have, I'll break this series up by inserting at times uh, what I'm calling some one-chapter wonders. We're going to do some book of the Bible uh, studies where we'll go verse by verse through the books of the Bible, but they'll be briefer in nature. We'll cover these books that are just one chapter, like Third John or Jude or Obadiah, those sorts of things. And I want to do that to give ourselves some space to digest this and then come back to the material and then think and digest it some more and then come back, I think it will help us review and really sink it into uh, the culture and the lifeblood of our church. But this is really the backbone of what I want to talk about over the next year or so with you as the church family. And here is the 30,000 foot view. We gave this to you last week, but this is where we're headed over the next year or so. This would be the river of spiritual growth. There is a starting point. There, there are these headwaters, as it were, where you have to begin the river at faith in Jesus. And those headwaters begin to form what is called the main stem or the channel of the river. And that river is also faith in Jesus. As you've received Jesus, so walk ye in him. Or as we'll see today, that the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I don't just, I don't just start my journey there, but I live my journey through faith in Jesus. And then there are these four kind of primary tributaries that dump into the river, that begin to make the river fuller and grander and even flow with greater rapidity. You would find that you would have four different tributaries, one being the spirit of Jesus, one being the words of Jesus, that you would grow not just in basic doctrine, but what it means to study the Bible. The church of Jesus, of course, you can't do this on your own. You need some life on life. And then ultimately the practices of Jesus, how this begins to manifest itself in very practical ways, how you serve, how you begin to develop a prayer life, uh, how you give, those sorts of things. And all of this, your faith in Jesus, the words of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, all of this pushes into the mouth where it should project itself out into you being with Jesus you being like Jesus, and you joining Jesus on mission. That's the core of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And if you are doing something right now, but it doesn't bring you in closer relationship with Jesus, and it doesn't conform you into the image of Jesus, nor does it help you join him on mission, then you're doing something wrong. Uh, spiritual growth is meant to, to funnel us in that direction. But today I want to start with where I think we should start, with the headwaters. This is the place to start on your spiritual journey. You have to start at faith in Jesus. And I meet some people who they want to grow spiritually, but they've, they've like missed this. And they've, they've begun attending church and they've gotten into a small group and they've started to serve or they've started to give. They've started to do some like spiritual things or maybe what some would call religious things but they've never really understood this. And if you don't understand this, then you will not navigate the river of spiritual growth. So we are in Galatians chapter number two. We're gonna start in verse number 15, but a, a quick recap on what's happening here. If you look in 
verse number 11, it will tell you a snippet of what is going on here. This is Paul writing about an account with Peter. He says in verse 11, when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Peter came to Antioch and I got in his face and I put my finger in his face and said, buddy, you are to be blamed. You are doing something wrong. You are leading people astray. Now, if you don't know a lot about Paul and Peter, Paul is this first century Jewish guy who hates Christians. Like he spends his, his time persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail. And he has this encounter with the risen Jesus and it transforms him. And he no longer becomes the Christian hater, but he, he turns into this person who wants to tell others about Jesus and go start churches and is one of the apostles. Then you have Peter or Simon Peter or St. Pete, whatever you want to call him. This guy who was an early follower of Jesus, but when Jesus is taken away to be crucified, he leaves Jesus, he forsakes, his hopes are dashed, and he thinks it's all over. And then he too meets a risen Jesus, and he walks with him and talks with him, and he eats with him, and it changes him. And he spends his time wanting to tell others about Jesus as well. So these are great Christian men, but it's this account of when Paul had to get in Peter's face and confront him about how he had, he had gotten off kilter about the gospel and what it was. And honestly, Peter was being prideful and prejudiced, and Paul had to confront him on this. And this little snippet of what we're going to read is part of that account of Paul's confrontation to Peter. Let's start in verse number 15, where Paul gives us this announcement, where I'm summarizing the announcement of, it is faith alone in Jesus alone. Verse 15 says, we, me, Paul and Peter, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So let's break this down piece by piece. Peter, me and you, we are Jews. We're Jewish guys. We are not sinners like the Gentiles. Meaning, Peter, we are the guys who grew up with the law, with like that, that thing that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to Israel, like those Ten Commandments. Like we grew up with those, we, we learned those. We are the moral people. We are the people who believe in one God. We are the people who prayed to God. We are these people, we're not like the Gentiles who have all these pagan gods and these rituals and these sacrifices. That wasn't us, we, we're the goody two-shoes. Even we know, what do we know? That a man is not justified. Now let's stop there. What does he mean justified? Justified is not a word that we use all too often in our vocabulary today. But we do occasionally use it when we would say maybe someone justifies their behavior. So if we dismiss the service today and everyone funneled out into the, the lobby, and let's say you're there and right next to you is 
a 20-something. This young man, he has a hoodie on, but you see off in the distance this 40-year-old man making a beeline. And you're like, are you coming at me? Are you coming at him? What's going on here? And sure enough, he comes to the 20-something-year-old young man right next to you, and he punches him in the face as hard as he can. He punches him so hard that he's out cold. He knocks him out. You, of course, are taken back. You're aghast. What in the world just happened here? Some people rush over to the 40-year-old. They begin to grab him. Someone says, call the cops. He just assaulted this guy. And he says, wait, time out. Look, look in his hoodie. There's a little pocket there, and his hand is in it. And look at, there's going to be a gun inside of there. And I have, I have good reason to believe that he was going to come, and he was going to shoot somebody today. And so you get the unconscious man, you take his hand out. Sure enough, there's a gun inside of there. Now, what happens is this moment is someone just justified their behavior. You thought they were in the wrong. Now you think they're in the right. And when, when Paul talks about justification, he's talking about our justification with God. That God used to think we were in the wrong, viewed us as wrong, and we were wrong. But now he views us as in the right. He used to view us as wrong and his enemy. Now he views us as right and part of his family. And he says, we know that this justification, this God now viewing us as right, which is an important thing to understand, how might I have right standing with God? How do I know for sure that me and God are on good terms how do I know for sure that he would let me into heaven? How do I know that we're good? Well, he says, first of all, here's how we know it's not. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. There is a clear way not to do this. It is not by you looking at the law, which is of God and is good. There's a lot of profit there. It's not like the, the Ten Commandments of don't steal and don't kill and don't commit adultery. Like, that's bad advice. But if you would look at that and say, I am going to get all the law and I am going to, to live a moral life. I'm going to be as good as possible. I will be as fastidious as possible. And I will do my best to keep every nook and every cranny of the law and try to obey every jot and every tittle as best as I possibly can. If that is your course of action in order to earn right standing with God, you're on a fool's errand. <laughs> you are sailing a sinking ship. That is not a viable solution. You cannot be justified or receive right standing with God by you trying to be good enough. And I'm not saying don't want to be good or don't want to be kind or don't want to live a righteous life. But if you think that you can do that and you can then in turn earn enough credit with God to where you are viewed as right because you've kept the law or you've been so moral, you can't do it. We know the people who had the law, that we're not justified by the law, but how are we justified? But by the faith of Jesus Christ. And it's not through keeping the law, it's through faith in Jesus. Even we, the Jewish people with the law, 
We have believed in Jesus Christ. Why? That we might be justified by the faith of Christ. It couldn't be more clear. Your account can be squared away. Your slate can be wiped clean. You who were viewed as wrong in God's eyes can now be viewed as right in God's eyes. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. Not not by what you've done, not in you keeping the law, but by what Jesus has done. Now, this can be counterintuitive to us because we oftentimes as individuals think if I'm going to earn right standing with God, I have to earn it. If that's going to happen, it better be on my account. But you have to understand that Christianity is utterly unique. It says that our justification... And in turn, our forgiveness of our sins or our redemption or receiving heaven, all of that is received, not achieved. It is not something that we do. It is not something that we earn. It is something that has been earned for us by Jesus. And we put our faith in him and we receive that freely by the grace of God so that we now can be justified. He says, in case it wasn't clear enough through the whole passage, he says one more time, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, that is terrible news for you if you are planning on earning your way to heaven. If you're planning on working hard enough or being good enough so that God would receive you and think that you are righteous, that is bad news bears. But if you understand the gospel, that's the most beautiful thing that you've ever heard. Our default response is if I mess up, I make it up. If I mess up with my spouse, I make it up to my spouse. If I mess up on the project at work, I work real hard and I make sure that I don't mess it up on the next one and I make it up on the next project at work. If I mess it up with my kids, then I make it up to my kids. That's generally how we operate as humans. Once again, this is utterly unique to Christianity. The Bible will say, you did mess it up. You cannot earn it by being good enough. If there's a good test and we pass the good test to every human on the planet, every human would fail the good test. Now, you say, what do you mean? I'm way better than my neighbor. That dude's a schmuck. Like, I'm way better than him. Well... You may be better than him, but you still fail the good test. Just because you got a 30 and he got a 10 doesn't mean you got an A. You're not pulling a 99. You're not pulling a 100. You're not pulling a C minus. We all fail the good test when we compare ourselves to the law of God and we compare ourselves to the holiness of God. Therefore, we cannot justify ourselves through our works or through the law. We can't do it. You say, that, that, sounds, that sounds like... I don't have to work. What do I have to do? It is faith in Jesus. I meet people all the time that say, you know, if there's a heaven, then I'll, I'll get in because I'm good enough. Like, you know, old, old Pete, St. Pete, he's going to be at the pearly gate, which is not how it really works, but it's how we portray it in our jokes. And I'm going to walk up to him and say, Pete, let me in. Why? Well, I've been pretty good. You know, I think my good outweighs my bad. Who are you comparing yourself to? 
Like you think just because you're better than your dad was that you're gonna make it in? Just because you're doing better than, than your mom or your coworker, that that's good enough? Compare yourself to the law. What you'll find is you're real selfish sometimes and you're real envious sometimes and you're real angry sometimes and it's not justified. And you find that you, you lie here and there, sometimes everywhere. You find that, oh my word, like I, I, I can't keep this, I've, I've, I've ruined it. And that would be true, but you're not justified by the works of the law. You are justified by faith in Jesus. And Paul is trying to say with everything in him, hey, Jew or Gentile alike, which was at the heart of the argument between Paul and Peter, because Peter was trying to delineate between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's trying to say all of us, no matter if we were the goody two-shoes or no matter if we were, you know, never been in church, never cared for God, been an atheist my whole life, whatever, like all of us are justified by one way and one way alone. It is faith alone in Jesus alone. That's it. That's the only way I could go from being viewed as wrong in God's eyes to being viewed as right in God's eyes. Now, he's going to take a minute to give a couple arguments. And these arguments are, are profound and they're so needed. Of what does this mean, our justification by our faith in Jesus alone? What does this mean for our life? And I think this is needed because many have pointed over the years and specifically uh, a Duke, a Duke George of Saxony, uh, said way back in the 16th century that this doctrine of faith alone in Jesus alone is a great doctrine to die by, but it's a lousy doctrine to live by. And his, his critique was like, okay, this is great. You can have all these deathbed confessions. This person who never cared for God or wanted to live righteous, they all of a sudden at the end understand it's not my works. And I put my faith in Jesus and then they're saved and the next day they die and they get to go to heaven. Whereas I like spent all my time trying to be a, as moral of a person as I could be and I'm not gonna get in. Like this is a great one to die by, but it's a terrible one to live by. And Paul is going to say in no uncertain terms that no, 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 this is a great doctrine to die by, but it's a great doctrine to live by as well. These are not mutually exclusive. So he gives two arguments. Argument number one is that because of our faith in Jesus, we can kiss the law goodbye. Here's what he says, verse 17. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law. You say, okay, help me. What did we just read? He's answering what would have been a very valid and logical question. So, Jesus justifies me. I receive it. I don't achieve it. He makes me right in God's eyes. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm justified. I'm a Christian, but I still sin. Does that mean that Christ is part of my sin? And Paul says, God forbid. No. God's not the author of sin. And he goes on to say, well, what, what about this if I sin? Well, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I'd make myself a transgressor. We would put it this way probably. If I pick up what I previously put down, it's my own fault. If, if I'm supposed to, to put down the sin and I pick it back up, that's not Jesus' fault. That's my own fault. So he is, he is articulating that we do still sin after we are justified. And he's actually confronting Peter because Peter was sinning after Peter was justified. But he's saying that's, that's not Christ's doing. And he goes on to say in verse 19, 
I through the law am dead to the law. The, the law to Paul was his grand master. It was the thing that controlled him. It was the thing that he lived for. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees who wanted to keep every nook and cranny of the law. So for him to say, I am now dead to the law, not that the law has zero profit, not that the law is bad advice, but that is no longer what controls me. That is no longer what is the staple or the mainstay of my life. That is no longer the vehicle by which I am trying to achieve justification. I have learned that that was a fool's errand and I have set that to the side. I'm done with that. And we should be done with that. We do not earn our salvation. We do not earn justification. Then he goes on to say, not only can I kiss the law goodbye, but I can actually embrace true life. That this faith alone in Jesus alone will allow me to live in a way that is real living. Here's what he says. I through the law am dead to the law. Why? And if you're in the habit of like underlining in your Bible or something like that, just circle or underline every time you see living or life. I'm dead to the law that I might live to God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, more to come on this because this verse is most specifically talking about the main stem of the river of spiritual growth. But what he is articulating is this faith in Jesus not only starts me and justifies me, it's this faith in Jesus that I now live into. I am dead to the law, I'm crucified with Christ. Many believe that those are synonymous and I would agree with them. And this means that I am free from the burden of the law, the heavy, heavy over my head, that I haven't done enough, that I haven't earned enough, that I haven't been good enough, that I haven't prayed enough, that I haven't fasted enough. Like all of that now is gone and there's no more guilt or shame associated with that. But now I can actually live into my, my faith in Jesus. There's real vitality here. I could illustrate this a thousand different ways because this really is, is a compression that can be so expanded into the nooks and crannies of our life. But I'll just choose one for sake of time this morning. What does it mean that now I can actually live by my faith in Jesus? Take just for example, fear versus peace. There are a lot of people who intuitively know, if not all of us, that we have done some wrong, we are going to give an account for that wrong to a higher power, and we fear what that would be like to stand before God and to have to account for what we've done or not done. How could I be released from the fear of that day? How could I be confident that I would be viewed as right and not as wrong? Well, my faith in Jesus. How could I pillow my head at night with confidence that, you know what, I am not worried about if I slipped off into eternity right now. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about if bouncer Pete will let me through the, the pearly gate. 
I'm not worried about if I would make it to heaven or if, if I would go to hell. None of, that, none of that troubles me at all. How could you possibly have that if it is on your own with you earning and you trying to be as good as you can and trying to keep the law as best you can and be as moral of a person as you can and have your good outweigh your, uh, your bad, how do you ever really know that it's going to happen? You don't. But if it is, as Paul says it is, that this is received, that Jesus has earned it for me, and all I have to do is put my faith in him, and now I am justified and I am viewed as right in God's eyes, then there is a peace that begins to drive out the fear because I can know it's not based off of my performance, which we all know our performance is very suspect on some days. It is no longer based on me, it is based on him, and he is faithful and trustworthy, so I can be locked and loaded, guaranteed, resting assured that heaven is my home because he has justified me. You see how peace and fear begin to, peace comes in and fear goes out? About half of our church grew up Catholic. I'm not going to make you do a raise of hands of, of who grew up Catholic and who didn't. Catholics believe in purgatory. What is, what is purgatory? Well, I'm like justified, but with an asterisk. Like I've done enough good, but I'm still going to have to suffer some and simmer away and burn off my venial sins. And I better hope that one of my relatives says enough prayers for me or lights enough candles for me or gets enough indulgences for me so that I can get out of there quicker and eventually make it to heaven. You tell me how you can compute that logically with we're justified by faith in Jesus. The two don't mix. Either I am justified and I am now viewed as right with God, and if I am viewed as right with God, how is he going to send me to purgatory to, to burn off some of my wrongs? Or I'm not. Like there's not gradations to justification. Like level one, no purgatory. Level two, a little bit. Level three, a lot of bit. Like that's not how it works. You're justified or you're not. And that can take this fear of what will happen to me. I don't know. Is there suffering? Whatever. And it will cast it out and bring peace. Even in, in your day-to-day -day life, some of you like, you, you're saved. You put your faith in Jesus. You're justified. Whether you would articulate it in those terms or not, you are. But you worry about if God, like, has the stomach for you. Like, does he really want me to pray to him? Does he, I, I mean, I think he wanted to talk to Paul, and I think he wanted to talk to Peter. Like, those dudes were pretty, like, they had a, they had a, a Christian cape flapping in the wind. You know, they were awesome. I think he wants to talk to the pastors and the missionaries, but I don't know. Does he really want to talk to me? I don't think that he likes me that much. I, I think that, like, the pastors are going to get to heaven, like, first class, and they're going to have this big mansion. But me, I'm pretty sure God's going to make me fly spirit to get there, and then he's going to give me, like, a little house, like, in the shadow of the mansion. So I just don't think he likes me that much. Listen, that's not justification. We're talking about... Every single person who has put their faith in Jesus, you have the same justification that Pastor Mark has, and we have the same justification that Peter has, and we have the same justification that Paul has. It is the same. 
God used to view us as wrong and God now views us as right because of our faith in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that we can live into this faith in Jesus. This actually has practical implications for our day-to-day living, whether it's fear and peace or anything else. This is a doctrine to live by. This is something that we can grab a hold of and we can live into our faith with Jesus. He ends this little snippet, this section of scripture with this analysis and I'm, I'm summing up the analysis, these are not his words, they're mine, that we were up a creek, but Jesus. And here's what he says. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now what is he saying? He is saying, Jesus dies for our sins. It's what we call the atonement. He sheds his blood for our sins. He atones. And because of his atonement, now justification is made possible for us. And with this justification comes a slew of what I would call benefits. It's probably a crass word for it, but we'll call them benefits. My sins are forgiven. I get a home in heaven The Holy Spirit dwells within me. All these things happen when we're justified. All of this is made possible by the grace of God. The whole idea of I receive it, not achieve it, means it is freely given to me and I receive it like a gift. It is given by the grace of God. And he says, I don't want to diminish the grace of God if we made this about what we did, if we made this about our good outweigh and our bad, if we made this about our works or our morality, then it would be frustrating the grace of God. We would diminish the grace of God. And this is a very helpful point for most people because most people think at at this point, well, that sounds too easy. It sounds too good to be true. Like, where's the string attached? And I wouldn't call it a string attached by any stretch of the imagination, but there is a component that most people don't realize that if I receive it, it is free and too good to be true, but not really. It is too good, but it's true. And when we receive it, what that means is that the grace of God now becomes bolder and more beautiful. What makes the grace of God pop in our heart and in our mind? I earned it and he better give it to me? Well, that's not gracious. I didn't earn it, and I was hosed, but he gave it to me freely. You tell me which one's more gracious. This idea of the gospel and how Christianity is begun is something that not only makes the grace of God pop in grandiose ways, but it also makes the glory of God pop in magnanimous ways. And Paul says, I don't want to diminish that. I know I'm getting this freely, and I'm justified just by my faith in Jesus. That's it. But this makes God so gracious and so glorious, I would never want to frustrate that. When he says a very logical statement, if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. Think about it. If there was already a path for you to be righteous, for you to be justified, for you to be saved, if there was already a path for you to do it, and you could do it by the law, and you could do it by your own moral striving, then why would God need to make another path? Why would Jesus have to die? And and the logic holds, it's because there wasn't a path. It's because righteousness didn't come by the law. It's because you couldn't do it on your own. 
So Jesus did make a way for us, and he doesn't die in vain, as it were. He actually dies for a reason, so that we could be justified when we put our faith in him. And if you do not understand this, if you do not put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone and receive salvation, receive justification by the grace of God alone, there is no river of spiritual growth. You can learn some of the Bible, you can be around Christian people, you can pick up the lingo, you can even begin to be more generous, but you will never actually grow spiritually. These are the headwaters. You have got to start here. I take you back to the 1500s. There was a monk, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, who in Martin Luther's own words, he wallowed in eternal torment. And he wallowed in eternal torment because Martin Luther believed that if he could be good enough, God would receive him, that he would have right standing with God. But he knew somehow intuitively that he never could. And even though he had devoted his life to be a monk, even though he was this, this shining example of monastic piety, he knew he could never fast enough and he could never memorize enough verses and he could never pray enough and he could never do enough. He could never give enough. Like he knew, I, I just can never have peace that I actually have right standing with God. And eventually Martin Luther made his way into the book of Romans and he read this little phrase in the book of Romans that the just or the justified will live by faith. And it was this light bulb moment where he understood what Habakkuk had said many, many years earlier and had been echoed not only through the words of Jesus, but through the words of the apostles. He began to understand what I'm telling you this morning, that the only way for you to be viewed as right and not wrong in God's eyes is by your faith in Jesus. It's the only way. And it's through this faith that there's real living. We sang this morning these words. Throughout every season, I am sure we have every reason to praise the Lord. I was in the song Rejoice. Oh, come on, be honest. Every season? Like, you don't know how, how much of a crunch I'm in financially right now. You don't know how bad my health is. You don't know the news my mom just got from the doctor. You, you don't know where I'm at in my marriage. How can every season, I'm sure we have every reason to praise the Lord? When you understand justification, justification doesn't change with your season. It doesn't change in the good times and the bad times. It doesn't change when your circumstances change. It doesn't change when your back hurts. It doesn't change when your finances are lacking. So in every season, whether they are circumstantially bliss or circumstantially bad, in every season, you have every reason to praise the Lord. You have justified me. That's always applicable. We sang this morning that Christ is our hope in life and death, which is completely the opposite of what Duke George of Saxony said. It's one we can die by and one we can live by. Christ is our hope both in life and in death. Why? It is all because of our faith alone in Jesus alone. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray in just a minute and give you an opportunity to respond to the sermon. But there's basically two groups in this room. Group number one is like, Pastor, thank you for the sermon. 
you articulated some things in some ways that maybe I hadn't exactly thought of it that way, but I knew this. I am a Christian. I have put my faith in Jesus. Like, you didn't give me that much new today. Your, my call to you is for you to stop when we pray and just to say thank you to God. There are so many key words in this phrase. Thank you that I'm justified. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you were crucified, and that was not in vain. That was for me. Thank him for those things. I do not want to take for granted as we begin this series that people understand this. I know most of you do, but I do not want to assume that we have this down pat and we can just skip over it. This has to be where we start. There's probably group number two, and you would be the group that would say, Maybe I've called myself a Christian. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've uh, memorized the catechism. Maybe you've done a lot of church. But you've honestly never come to a point where you put your faith and your trust alone in Jesus alone. And, and it shows up because you don't have peace. You don't have peace about where you'd spend eternity. You don't have peace if God actually likes you or not. You don't have peace on if you're really right with God. You, you spin your wheels like, am I right with God? Am I not? And you probably haven't understood this. My call to you is when we pray, I'll give you an opportunity just to call out and to put your faith in Jesus alone. And Jesus says, if you will do that, he will justify you. He will redeem you. He will forgive your sins. He will save you if you'll take that opportunity.